0: From So Say We All on KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that brings you true stories from the lives of veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Our guest this episode, Matt Gallagher, first made a name for himself in 2008 when he was an officer in the Army deployed to Iraq. While serving downrange, Gallagher ran a very popular blog titled Kaboom, a soldier's war journal. Service members were not only allowed to blog during deployment, but encouraged back then, as long as they followed proper protocol and did not run afoul of their commander's benevolence. And Matt's blog was one of the biggest ones out there. Here was a highbrow English major commanding a striker unit known as the Gravediggers and waxing philosophical about it online, making references to pop culture and literary classics in the same paragraphs. And then one day, it was shut down. And you're going to hear all about why after this. This episode of Incoming is sponsored by Easy. Easy provides customized problem solving for any project, anytime, whether it's building software and automation for your business, support writing your next book, or something as simple as making a dinner reservation. Learn more at SoEasy.com, spelled S O E A S I E.com. Welcome back to Incoming. I'm Justin Hudnell, and our guest today is author and Army veteran Matt Gallagher, who first gained national notoriety for covering the Iraq War while he was fighting in it through his blog, Kaboom, until it was abruptly shut down by his superiors. In Matt's words, the shutdown happened because, quote, a rash posting on my part and decisions made above my pay grade. The Army said it was because his last post, titled, The Only Difference Between Martyrdom and Suicide is Press Coverage, did not go through proper vetting channels, which Gallagher says was just due to him being on leave at the time he posted it. Both MTV and The Washington Post covered the shutdown of the blog, which Matt signed off on with these words. It's totally on me, as it was too much unfiltered truth. I'm a soldier first, and orders are orders, so it is. Thank you for caring. Agree or disagree with the war if you're reading this. You are engaged and aware, and as long as that is still occurring in a free society, there's something worth fighting for. Since leaving the Army, Matt Gallagher has been able to write all he wants about anything he wants. He's co-edited one of the very first anthologies of veteran writers from the forever wars titled Fire and Forget, many of whose contributors have gone on to make major names for themselves in the literary world in their own right. His memoir, Kaboom, Embracing the Suck and the Savage Little War, came out in 2010, and his new novel, Young Blood* dropped in 2016. We'll be talking with him about all of that and more. So without further ado, here's Matt Gallagher. Matt Gallagher, thanks so much for joining us on Incoming. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Why don't you start us off by telling us where you were in life and what motivated you to join the Army? Sure.
1: Flash back a few years. September 2001 changed a lot of trajectories for a lot of people. Uh, and I was, I was one of them. I was a freshman in college. I just started uh, at uh, Wake Forest in North Carolina. I'd uh, join the Army ROTC program mostly as a way to pay for school. I, you know, I came from a military family, so that part was natural, but I certainly was no G.I. Joe type of kid. I really didn't know too much about uh, Army life. I, I think I had some vague idea of, of maybe being a military lawyer, but the truth is I just hadn't really thought about it at all. You know, I just wanted to pay for school and uh, figured I could figure it out from there. About two weeks in, 9-11 occurs. I was still so young and naive that... Uh, we had a previous ROTC meeting scheduled for that evening, just to show freshman cadets how to tie our boots, how to put our equipment together, uh, etc. But uh, as I was walking to that meeting, I didn't know. I mean, are they going? I was thinking, are they going to send us straight to Afghanistan? Uh, I, I, <laughs> uh, I don't even know how to tie my boots. You know, I've, I've fired fired a gun maybe twice in my life. I'm not ready. Uh, thankfully, that's that's not how deployments work, which I learned later that evening. And yeah, so you know, over the course of the next four years. I decided to uh, stay in army ROTC and, and honor my commitment there, and then you know also decided that if I was going to do this army thing, uh, you know I kind of wanted to do it closer to the front. You know a lot was occurring. We went to Afghanistan a couple months after after that, and then into Iraq in in March of 2003. I figured history was happening, and uh, I wanted to be a small part of it, and, and hopefully be a small part for the better. So. Uh, May of two thousand five, graduate uh, from college and commission as a young lieutenant uh, as an armor officer, uh, and get signed to a uh, cavalry uh, unit in in Hawaii. So yeah, we got we got sent to Iraq. I was in charge of a scout platoon at this point in late two thousand seven, and uh, that's kind of where uh, everything uh, began, both for me professionally as a as a junior officer, and uh, even though I wasn't aware of it at the time, ultimately as a writer. Hi, my name is Matt Gallagher. This is an excerpt from an essay I wrote for the Paris Review in 2016 on Hemingway and his influence on me, uh, both as a young writer and reader, uh, and ultimately as an army officer. Like many young people of a certain type, I read a lot of Hemingway growing up. Too much, probably, though there were worse pastimes for teenage boys to pursue in Reno, Nevada. Still, my 16-year-old self full of angst and emo aches, felt he'd found a kindred spirit in the character of Jake Barnes, even if Jake's brooding was much deeper, much darker, and more significant than my own. The northern Michigan of the Nick Adams stories bore passing resemblance to the Lake Tahoe Basin, and my earliest attempts at creative work were pale and poor imitations of the Hemingway stories The End of Something and The Three-Day Blow. While The Old Man and the Sea bored me to video games the first time I tried it, that didn't stop me from extolling Santiago's badassness at the dinner table. This was pre 9 11 America, a suburban white collar community far removed from battle or turmoil. As with many of my generation, I'd grown up under the dueling narrative shadows of World War II and Vietnam. My parents had both been children of World War II veterans and both had protested the Vietnam War. As a result, my brother and I had been raised with a healthy respect for the military, mixed with a healthy skepticism for how and when military force is applied. While my Hemingway obsession did confuse my mom a bit, she later told me she figured at least it wasn't drugs or French philosophy. I started calling him Hem or Ernie in conversation, like we were old friends. The former when I was being sincere in my adulation, the latter when I felt more lighthearted. His pithy quotes that doubled his writing advice and tripled as macho pseudo philosophy infiltrated my instant messenger away messages, for those of you old enough to remember those, then my school essays. A man can be destroyed but not defeated. Happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. The only thing that could spoil a day was people, etc. I read Hemingway's biographies like they contained the secrets of the universe, taking careful note of how his early career as a journalist shaped his prose. So I joined the high school newspaper and began saying things like, f**k adjectives, and sit down at the computer and bleed, and this article about the powderpuff game needs to be truer. My favorite biography carried the title A Life Without Consequences. At the time, that seemed like a thing to aspire for. I was young. And while it's a bit embarrassing to admit now, the life and times of the character of Robert Jordan and his real-life inspiration, Robert Hale Merriman, who attended school in Reno, had a lot to do with me joining the Army ROTC program in college at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. I'd end up writing my history thesis on the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the American volunteers who fought Franco and fascism in Spain over our own government's objections. The dark, awful romance of it all was like a siren song. The fact that they'd been dismissed as premature anti-fascists, like it was a bad thing, became a common rant of mine in the fraternity house. We were in the Bush era now, and my worldview was being shaped by the politics of the time, and by events across the globe, from Afghanistan to Iraq and beyond. Hemingway's books stayed with me during it all, though I refer to him as Papa now, because I'd learned the power of reverence. I held personal misgivings about the Iraq invasion. Less than two years before, 9-11 had seemed our generation's Pearl Harbor. And now, somehow, people were comparing us to the Galactic Empire from Star Wars, and not just stupid people. Was war in Iraq inevitable? Of course not, but in that moment, as angry debates about yellow cake and weapons of mass destruction filled our television screens. It sure felt that way. I could leave ROTC, become a regular college student again. My parents offered to find a way to pay back the scholarship money I'd incurred if that's what I wanted to do. I told them I wasn't even thinking like that, but I was. I was thinking like that a lot. I finished my thesis on the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. I was proud of it. I added an epigraph to it before turning in the final version, a passage from For Whom the Bell Tolls. Today is only one day in all the days that will ever be. But what will happen in all the other days that ever come can depend on what you do today. History was happening. The Robert Jordans of the world didn't jeer at history. They weren't interested in something as small and self-involved as moral purity. Not when it came time to act. Not when it came time to be part of something. Life was complicated and immense, something I was only beginning to comprehend. The Robert Jordans participated in history to make it better, or to at least try. I wanted to be like that. More specifically, I wanted to live a life like that. The others did too. So we went.
0: Going back and talking about your motivations for for joining, also you were mentioning in your piece about Hemingway and the influence, all of these other major literary war writers played upon, you know, your mind when you were thinking about what your role in, in history would be about that. Can you talk about while you were stationed in Hawaii and before you uh, joined up, that male rite of passage that war has uh, for so many of us around that age?
1: Yeah, you know, I, th- I think that was there. I-, I was a really kind of idealistic kid, prone to romantic notions. I never grew up the way I think some of some of our peers did, thinking that I had to go through combat uh, to prove myself or something. But yeah, that that allure was uh, was there, and, and I was not immune to it. More than anything, I just kind of wanted to be a person that uh, was willing to get their hands dirty to to hopefully affect things for the better. Uh, I, I just didn't want to spend my twenties caring about my own moral purity, right, and and <laughs> not trying to do something. Beyond myself, you know, in a different world, that you know, that could have been the Peace Corps, uh, that could have been teaching. There are a multitude of ways uh, of ways to do that. For whatever reason, I ended ended up in the army, which is uh, perhaps a little strange to some listeners. But you know, I, I think the ranks, uh, not just now, but over the eons, have been filled with with kind of dreamy young soldiers uh, like that. So, um, the books influenced me, especially Hemingway. But I, I don't think it was. Tr- because of the bombs of the bullets so much as it was aspiring to be somebody that, that helped others or put themselves out there uh, to affect change.
0: More of the stature of the character.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, there you know there is an authority that uh, veterans come with in that regard. Uh, much of it is earned. Uh, some of it's overblown, in my opinion. Uh, so I may not have been conscious of that uh, as a teenager, uh, but... Yeah, looking back, that was that was a big part of it for sure.
0: One thing you said that really stuck with me is, you know, having grown up with Gulf One and seeing how quickly that was begun and ended, were there any doubts in your mind that you'd even get to Iraq in time to catch it after enlisting? I mean, after oh, commissioning, rather? Absolutely. I remember
1: watching um, the Iraq invasion on the news. So this would have been uh, spring of 2003 with my, uh, with my roommate, who uh, was an anti-war protester, uh, so I think we learned a lot from each other, and and you know, certainly discussed these things in earnest, uh, as you know, as much as young college kids uh, did, or could, and uh, expressed to my roommate that uh, uh, you know Iraq's going to be over by the time I graduate and commission into the army, and feeling both relief from that and also a little resentment too, because I wanted to be, do I want to be part of that. Part of me did, and then part of me didn't. I figured. Uh, Bigger forces were at play that would ultimately decide that, uh, but I very naively and very foolishly didn't think uh, Iraq was going to be part of my future. Of course, I was there uh, about two and a half years later, uh, and even then it was nowhere close to the end of the war. So uh, that was a big a big wrong uh, on my part, forecasting <laughs> uh, how that war would play out.
0: Uh, something you write about in Kaboom and, uh, and talk about in other pieces that is really interesting to me is the kind of fake it till you make it necessity of a young lieutenant when put into mm-hmm. a leadership role with more experience and more grizzled um soldiers under his command can you talk about what that process was like for you to kind of become that person you felt like you had to be
1: a lot of times friends when they're they're kind of looking for a an anecdote to explain well what is counterinsurgency what is coin right uh I think back to the summer of 2008 when uh, my platoon was given, uh, you know, a couple uh, tens of thousands of American dollars, and we were told to go into the sectarian town that we lived in and uh, give $500 grants to local businessmen. And it was up to us to determine who were businessmen and who weren't. You know, there's no official documentation that said, oh, well, this history major, an uh, English minor, can can determine what is uh, what is a reputable business and what is not. But we adapted and, and did the best we could. You know, uh, oh, this guy has uh, receipts from an ice machine from a couple years ago. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. We know we know these barber shops uh, have been staying open. They're reputable businessmen. You know, talk to some of the local tribal leaders. Don't rely on them too much because otherwise you're only going to end up handing out money to their family members. Hmm. But they're good sources of information and. Yeah, I mean, so much, so much of that experience uh, with coin was uh, learning to become uh, jack of all trades while masters of none. You know, you had to be ready for, uh, for doing something like that, or or walking around and and figuring out uh, how much electricity was reaching certain neighborhoods. But then, at the drop of the hat, you know, riding to the sound of the guns because a firefight had broken out uh, on the other side of town. I, I think I learned very quickly um, that there were limits to uh, uh, pretending to be something you're not. You know, I was maybe 150 pounds dripping wet, uh, you know, so I wasn't going to go in there and out bench press my platoon. I was a pretty good shot. I was a good runner, uh, but uh, I had soldiers there that were better at both of those things. And, uh, you know, I just kind of learned that I needed to be honest with my men and uh, more than anything authentic. My strengths would come out, my weaknesses would come out, and uh, the same way that I was learning from them hopefully they could you know learn from me a little bit too and and we'd be a better line unit because of it you know at the time you know there was all these kind of other stories and memoirs coming out about you know super alpha male lieutenants uh, grunting and doing MMA with with their platoon and and just kind of being a uh, cock of the walk type of leaders and hey that worked for them but that was that was never going to be me i didn't need to be you know right they i had awesome sergeants uh, who who filled that role as disciplinarians I learned very quickly, I think, that my role as lieutenant was for something else, both to communicate with hire and and keep them informed, and also figuring out when to keep hire off of my guys' back, right, and just give them the freedom of mobility to do what they needed to get done. It's interesting because my memoir is very much a story of a platoon in the right place at the right time with the right people. A lot of things went right for us. My novel, which I wrote a few years after, is The Complete Inverse. It's uh, uh, placing a young officer in a terrible situation with the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong situation. And in you know both stories, I think at the center of it is uh, these questions of moral courage and moral authority. And uh, you know when I go and talk to young ROTC cadets about uh, what they should expect as a lieutenant, that's something I bring up a lot with them is that you're not there to be the biggest or the baddest soldier. They're you know, they're, they're career professionals who've dedicated their lives to these things. Part of your job not not the only part, but part of your job is to serve as a moral compass for for your platoon. That's a really ethereal thing. It's hard to describe, but it's vital, especially in the, in the way these, these wars have played out and the way they're fought these days. There's going to be a lot of hard, messy gray areas that uh, combat soldiers are put in. And junior leaders, lieutenants and sergeants who can navigate that well and quickly are instrumental to these... Uh, these types of wars, successes or failures.
0: You train in an armored cavalry unit, strikers, and uh, when you arrive during the surge, it's a very different war than the one maybe that those units had originally been intended for. And in in a lot of ways, you're walking and talking coin and patrolling these neighborhoods. And uh, coin, of course, is hearts and minds and counterinsurgency and country building a lot. Can you talk about what that was like to have that role kind of flipped and essentially being a beat cop.
1: We trained at Fort Knox on Abrams tanks uh, and uh, got to Iraq, and it was something else entirely. You know, it was pretty easy for me to adapt. I was 23, 24, had nothing nothing to compare it to other than training. So you want us to get on the ground and interact with the locals and, and put this uh, – uh, try to put this history degree to use. Okay, I'll, I'll do what I can. <laughs> you know, looking back it was probably a lot harder for some of my uh, older sergeants, right? Who who were career cavalrymen, who said, not ironically, "Death before dismount." God bless them. <laughs> what the mission called for, they executed and, and and got out there and and we, you know, became the best counterinsurgents we could be. So uh, it was uh, every day, every every night was was something new and. Uh, uh, we, you, know, you just had you just had to adapt to it, because um, otherwise,
0: I mean, there just wasn't an alternative. Looking back on that time now, how do you judge the effectiveness of it?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We came back in early two thousand nine, and uh, thought that uh, we'd won the war or something like it. Not that not that wars like Iraq can be won, but uh, in very real very meaningful uh, ways that that can and have been measured, things were starting to turn around. The sectarian violence had declined steadily. Schools were being reopened. There was more stable electricity. A water treatment plant uh, that had been inoperable for years finally opened up. These things matter. Garbage pickup was happening with some regularity. Kind of these basic civic services uh, that we take for granted here in America, in the middle of a war zone, uh, go away very quickly. And getting some of that back to the Iraqi people, at least you know in the, the corner of Babylon we were, it meant a lot. And, and we felt pretty good about it. Only now, all these years later, having interacted with veterans of Iraq uh, who were there throughout the war, do I realize how lucky we were to have that sense of, even that false sense of accomplishment, uh, tenuous sense of accomplishment. Even then, I think there was great concern amongst the ranks of, well, how much can this hold if there isn't American uh, money propping it up, if, if there aren't American soldiers posted all over to maintain it? There was this, kind of this giant question mark uh, hanging over it all. But at the time, pushing a country back from the brink of the Civil War was, was what we were charged with. Through a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, that was partly accomplished. I'm quoting smarter people than me when when they, when they say that you know the surge was a tactical and operational success while a strategic failure. We were tactical soldiers. So compartmentalizing that, uh, I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying it's wrong, compartmentalizing that and, and our role for what we were charged with and, and uh, what we accomplished is is something I've is something I've done as a human being. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, as a writer, probably done the opposite actually and, and uh, tried to explore The messiness of that within a strategic failure, because there's a lot there. There's a lot going on. Most prominently, the Iraqi people, who all these buzzwords mean nothing to. All they know is uh, 15 years of war continues to endure because of uh, because the American invasion in 2003. So anytime I get too uh, philosophical about this, I I try to ground myself and remind myself that we walked away after 15 months. This is this is their lives.
0: Incoming with Matt Gallagher will be right back after this.
2: KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, a health resort 45 minutes from San Diego. Holiday retreat packages of three, four, or seven nights include fitness classes, hiking, mindfulness, and culinary adventures. Rancholapuerta.com.
0: I'm Justin Hudnell. You're listening to Incoming where we're speaking with our guest today, Army veteran Matt Gallagher. Author of the memoir *Kaboom* and his new novel *Young Blood*.
1: Hi, my name is Matt Gallagher. This is a short excerpt from my memoir *Kaboom*, embracing the suck in a savage little war, which was published in 2010 by DeCapo Press. Uh, it's about uh, my scout platoon's tour to Iraq during the surge in 2007 and 2008 in Iraq, and uh, this excerpt explores our first encounter. Uh, with the enemy we'd heard so much about and and uh, had been trying to chase down for their, our first few weeks in country. It was a day after the great red dust storms ended, a little more than a week after our squadron lost its first soldier to a deep buried IED in the farmlands west of Saba Albor. I lay in bed, staring at the wall from the top bunk, basking in the rarest of days. One in which I could sleep in. The gears in my mind were just beginning to grind toward muscle movement, mainly a product of memory, then a conscious decision, when Sergeant First Class Big Country, our platoon sergeant, barreled through the door. The Iraqi Army got Mohammed Shaba, he said, staying just long enough to drop off an empty mug of coffee. Just like that, he was gone. I was back in Iraq, and my nothingness had burst like a star cluster. I cursed to myself, slapped myself in the face, and hopped off the top bunk. The nothingness was now gone. So, I thought, they got the ghost. Sabal bors native son, a known terrorist and wanted murderer, had been a general thorn on the side of coalition forces for the better portion of the past year. Much of his celebrity status was overblown, mostly due to his self-designated nickname, which translated to either Muhammad the Ghost or Muhammad the Shadow, depending which interpreter had been asked. Nevertheless, Hire had longed after this al-Mahdi insurgent for a long time. Capturing was a public relations dream, if not a key strategic blow for Shia extremism in our area. Mike's scout platoon had already been on a few boondoggles going after him, but we were always a room away, ten minutes late, or finding his grandfather with a full piss bag, but without a grandson. When Muhammad Shaba missions came down, it usually felt like we were hunting a black dog in the night. These experiences weren't isolated to just our platoon. They encapsulated all of Bravo troops' spouts with the ghosts. And now the Iraqi army had them. Sure, I was shocked, I thought, but good for them. This is what we were aiming for, after all. A self-sustaining Iraqi security force. Yawning, I strolled out of our room and into the main foyer of the combat outpost. Our company commander and a few of the soldiers from headquarters platoon were heading out the front door en route to the Iraqi Army compound to question the ghost and his fellow detainees. I bumped into Lieutenant Virginia Slim, who was coming up the stairs and taking off his helmet. He had just been over with the Iraqi Army. My dude, he said, you should head over and check those guys out. Why? I asked. I didn't feel compelled to put on my gear. I was more interested in grabbing a few banana nut muffins and seeing if there were any pieces of bacon left. Did the commander say he needed me? Nah, I just thought you'd appreciate the scene, he said. Just a couple of scared punk teenagers. We probably could have had them months ago if we'd set up a trap with Xboxes and some weed. We laughed, and I sauntered toward the pantry, rubbing at the stubble of my face. I should probably shave too, I thought. It had been a few days. After breakfast and a quick dry shave, curiosity got a hold of me, and I walked across the street to the Iraqi army compound. I poked my head around the fence line and spotted a crowd of Iraqi army soldiers, commonly referred to by their Arabic name of Jundis, interlaced with a group of American soldiers sent over to ensure the detention process stayed peaceful. There was a post-prize fight feeling in the air. The soldiers of both countries were joking with one another, crowing like young bantams at a cockfight. They crowded around three grubby, emaciated shapes in handcuffs and wrapped in blankets that were stacked against the building. The three shapes were separated along the wall so they could not communicate. They were crouched in the traditional Arab squat and only nervous, darting glances from downcast heads confirmed them to be human beings and not teenage scarecrows made of dirt. As I walked closer... I recognized Muhammad Shaba from the mugshots we'd used for countless previous missions. Same scar across the right cheek, same long chin, same mop of black hair jetting out. In the photograph, he snarled toward the camera, menacingly challenging the viewer to dare to venture into Sabal Bor's alleys to hunt him. Here, at the compound, though, he did not snarl, nor challenge, nor dare. He sniffled like a bullied child, trying to hold back tears, cradling his swollen nose, which dripped with blood. It had been broken by a Jundi when he bit one of them and tried to escape. The teenager handcuffed next to him, who I later learned was another top target of ours known as Ali the Prince, wept far more openly and reeked of feces. Wait a minute, had he really? Yes, sir, he actually sh**ed himself, one of our headquarters sergeants said to me, apparently provoked by my sniffing of the air and grimace. Gives new meaning to the term scared shless, don't it? I nodded, hoping I appeared aloof and knowing to my enemies, who now had faces. Why I cared in the first place? I still don't know.
0: Shifting to talk about your writing a little bit, your memoir, Kaboom, was on the front line of the wave of veteran literature that um, continues today, and I think has been very different from other wars, and in in how quickly those stories have come out after uh, their author's service, or after their authors have left the military. Um, but you are a little bit of a legend, because you actually started writing on a blog while in country, and... Um, I mean, if you could talk to us a little bit about that first, because one of the questions I've always wanted to ask you about that time is, I really cite that era as the the moment that the military command and, and the political administration behind it really got thrown because they couldn't control the message coming out of the war anymore because the actual service members were able to get it out themselves in their own words. So I, I wanted you to uh, to tell our audience about what that experience was like for you. Kind of goes back actually to Hawaii before
1: we deployed. Um, we were going to a lot of meetings, uh, getting a lot of briefings about coin, about counterinsurgency, and you know a lot of it just wasn't resonating with me. And, and uh, you know so I'd go back to my to my guys and try to explain it to them. And you know if it didn't make sense to me, it certainly was not going to make sense to them. So I just kind of started doing some research online and, and came across some military blogs that were written by soldiers and marines uh, over in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, talking about what they were doing. And it was so you know so much more helpful and informative than uh, any of the briefings that I've been going to in terms of understanding what our intent and our, what our mission was going to be. So I found that helpful as a leader. And then you know as somebody who'd grown up reading and writing as a way of making sense of the world, I think it sparked something in me that was like, hey, you could do something like this too. Figured it'd be a good way to keep in touch with family and friends. You know, the war was was very political uh, at that point, so I didn't want to ram it down people's throats. So you know, I figured a blog was a cool thing that people could visit if they wanted to. And if they weren't interested, no worries. You know, I think I had vague ideas of it maybe serving as a time capsule for me as a human being um, to go back and revisit how the experience was in the moment as opposed to, you know, decades of nostalgia uh, sanitizing it all. Uh, so, yeah, I started blogging. I called it Kaboom, kind of as an irreverent joke, irreverent reference to roadside bombs. You know, I, I was a... Definitely a kid with an ironic sensibility. It's pretty dark looking back on it, but it was, ha Mr. Insurgent Man, you're going to try to kill us with bombs? I'll name my blog Kaboom. Joke's on you. It's a very Irish um, approach, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the blood tells sometimes. I got I <laughs> I got, uh, I got plenty of that, that in me. Yeah, you know, I just kind of started blogging just a couple, couple times a week, you know, what we were seeing, what we were doing. You know, I was real mindful of operational security because that was the big thing at the time was don't give away... Location. Don't give away mission secrets, etc. So you know, I gave all my soldiers nicknames. I, I gave the town we were in a, a nickname, um, very vague about patrol details, and, and, and particularly the striker as a platform. And you know, it, it was really received pretty well at first from my command. Uh, you know, they, th- they thought it was a cool thing that had a human touch to to this new approach to the war, etc. Gradually, I'd get pushback about about some things I'd written about, uh, you know, reconciling what we were told to do versus what we were actually doing. And that all kind of culminated about six months in when uh, I blogged about a conversation I had with our battalion commander that portrayed him in an unflattering light. He was an asshole, but I, I was certainly wrong to uh, to not only write about it, but then to post it, which, uh, you know, was pretty, pretty reckless. You know, a lot of times people ask me, like, why would you do that? And it's like we were so tired. Our day-to-day business was so serious and so... Uh, Every new mission, every new patrol was was so imperative that, you know, the blog was just kind of like a something I did on the side when I had free time, you know, helped me kind of make sense of things. So writing about it was something that just made sense, posting it, whatever. Like, I certainly wasn't the first lieutenant to be pissed off about being chewed out by a superior officer. I very naively didn't think it would get back to him. Uh, of course, that's not how the internet works. It got back to him, <laughs> I think, in about three hours. And, you know, he he, he shut it down, which was... Well within his right um, to do. Of course, on the flip side, by doing that, it made the blog a much bigger deal than it otherwise would have been. Anytime people get a whiff of authority crushing something, it can spread like wildfire, and that, that's that's what happened with the blog. You know, I, I probably a, f- a few dozen, maybe uh, maybe a hundred readers before he shut it down. He wanted the blog to go dark, but uh, by that point, a bunch of mirror sites had popped up. You know, there's there's a way back Machine. You know, mm-hmm. people. People could still find all this stuff because that's that's how the internet works. Uh, so a lot more people, a lot more eyeballs uh, started reading those entries because of that. So all these years later, I should probably send them a fruit basket or something. I don't know.
0: Give them an edible arrangement. Yeah. No, it was a digital <laughs> martyrdom. And I wonder if that didn't, in a way, also politicize your writing in a way that may not have been your intention out the gate.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I definitely didn't view my blog writing as as political or anti-war. Um, at the time. But when you're writing about war, how can it not be political in some way? Right. right. So I believed in in trying the counterinsurgency approach. It was something different. It was something new. I appreciated that rather than trying the, the same old, same old. But that, it came with warts. It came with its faults. It, it, uh, it, it didn't always meet the, the clean, sanitized version that Big Army wanted to put out. And I think I had the freedom to write what we saw and what we did because I'd already made the decision not to make the army a career. So, you know, I wasn't trying to intentionally be reckless. It's just, I'd been raised to, to tell the truth and to try to seek truth and not writing about it that way. It really just never crossed my mind. You know, had I had a more professional outlook on everything, I, I probably would have. But to paraphrase Grace Paley, great writer of the 20th century, it's not that you seek out to defy authority by writing but the mere process of writing you're you're going to defy authority you're going to you're going to ruffle feathers because you're you're transcribing you're in control of the story and certainly having the authority of, of being a lieutenant on the ground gave me that authority in that blog in a way that I I was not really aware of at the time but uh looking back on it yeah of course <laughs> it bothered the the staff majors and colonels back at base when it wasn't clean and pristine because they weren't out there they weren't seeing what What we were seeing they weren't doing what we were doing we had a lot of power and uh and transcribing that and and sharing that uh had it had its own power as well
0: we're getting farther and farther from the war in our cultural memory you know it barely even gets um, a headline in the news anymore even when uh, service members killed and i wonder as our relationship as our cultural relationship to uh OEF and OIF and O&D kind of become what our relationship was to Gulf One. As an archivist of the war, what do you feel like is the part that you want to not get lost the most? What aspect of that conflict? Oh,
1: that's a great question. I think something that connects all of my work, um, whatever the genre, whatever the format, is a howling reminder to to anyone bothering to pay attention, that the purpose of war is to find peace, not to continue war right? as, a, as an apparatus, as a business, mm-hmm. uh, that the absurdity uh, of uh, a war continuing just because it's been happening before is still an absurdity. And it's not only okay to p- point that out, it's imperative to point that out, not as a veteran, not as a writer, but as a thinking citizen of a republic. Recently, uh, the Wall Street Journal had a piece showcasing young Marine recruits on Paris Island who don't remember 9-11,
0: oh, who
1: will you know, potentially be sent to Afghanistan to uh, fight a war that began before they were born. There's a lot of things to draw from that, I think. One thing especially is we have failed our young people. As a society, we have failed our young people. We have given them this thing that just continues to, to go on and endure. I'm not a retired general. I'm not a, a foreign policy subject matter expert who works at you know a fancy think tank or anything. I can't say that I have all the answers, but I can say that we, as a as a country, as a people, need to pay attention still and remember that the purpose of war is peace, and uh, that I I worry uh, gets lost with each passing day, with each passing year of this forever war era.
0: I wanted to ask your opinion on on what you feel like the future of VetLit is. I remember feeling when all of these books and memoirs by service members were coming out, around the era you published Kaboom and slightly afterwards, there was such a cultural disconnect between civilians and their military, right? And this reaction to and consumption of uh, media by veterans as a way to connect to that war and also maybe as a little bit of an assuagement of guilt that the civilians felt. Looking into the future for veteran literature, what hopes, what ideas, what prognosis do you have for it as a genre?
1: Big heavy question there. Yeah, no, I I think that kind of the the spectacle of relationship between the military and civilian America is on display, right? Like, you know, whether it's the homecomings at football games, whether it's military getting to board an airplane first. You know, I, I think it's coming from an earnest place from our countrymen's perspective, they don't know what to do, right? And, right. and they're, they're trying. And I, you know, I, I think it's imperative on on vets, especially vet writers, to remember that it's it's on us to meet these people halfway. Don't take advantage of this platform just to soapbox at people, right? right? Play the vet if, card. I, yeah, no. I, I if that's what you want to do, if that's what you want to take from post nine eleven America, is this an opportunity to? sell t-shirts and wedge a divide between us and them you do you I, I think that's deeply selfish and, and deeply unhealthy for for us as a country meeting people halfway remembering that these wars don't just belong to us right we fought in the citizenry's name right We didn't just wear the the patches of our units overseas but the patch of the American flag so you know something I try to remind people and sometimes they like it sometimes they don't is hey if you paid your taxes you're part of this too.
0: Right, I mean, you could argue that 9/11, even though it was a terrorist attack, was kind of the end of the concept of the civilian, at least in America.
1: Ah, uh, that ooh, that's that's heavy. I, I think there's been some really good essays about that idea. Um, I remember Susan Sontag wrote a really uh, scathing essay for the New Yorker, like a week after the 9/11 attack. That's kind of brutally makes makes a simil, similar point about that. And and uh, both her and Hunter S. Thompson wrote essays kind of forecasting this era of what the war on terror would look like and how it would play out. And uh, it's, it's dark gloomy stuff from 2002 that has been proven correct. As for war literature as a genre, it's a big complicated thing. And, and I think I'm hopeful in some ways and, and cynical in others. Uh, you know, I think we're starting to see you know, on the hopeful side, a broadening of voices. I think uh, we're seeing more women veterans, veterans of, of color, coming forward with their stories and and getting published. I think that's vital. There is kind of a tradition of that I'm a part of, frankly, of the the white junior officer coming back and sharing what they've seen. That's important, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. We're a big country with people who serve in the military from all sorts of backgrounds and perspectives and worldviews and uh, getting that into the stories and getting them published is is fundamental to a deeper and better understanding of just what the hell it is that's been going on these past 18 years. I think we're starting to see bigger chances in the way these stories are told taking place, you know. Uh on the more cynical side, I do worry that people have started to tune out, right? It's there's there's so much going on in this in, in the world right now that uh asking people to care about foreign wars that they've at best had a distant relationship to already for, for almost two decades now. Hey, I'm trying to pay the bills. Uh, there's another presidential election coming up. There's already so much on the news that getting people to engage with messy, uh, sometimes dark literature on these wars is, is asking a lot. As a result of that, it's it's on us as writers, as creators, to find new, sharp, unique ways, entry points, really, to get these stories to readers. You know, something like Kaboom!, kind of a very straightforward day-by-day chronicle. You know, soldiers are still experiencing that. They're still doing it. They're still writing about it. But getting something like that published would probably be very hard, frankly, in in 2019, much harder than it was in in 2010. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in that way, it's going to be on us. If we're able to reach readers, um, then it's our success. If we're not, then it's our failure. Long-winded way of saying, I guess, there's some signs of hope and also some signs of, of depression. Uh, and, and Reasons to Rage, as always. You know, I guess that's always the, the writer's uh, reconciliation process.
0: Right. Well, a bitching soldier is a happy soldier, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. You worry about the ones who aren't bitching.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. We'll be right back with Matt Gallagher after this. You're listening to Incoming.
2: KPBS On Demand is supported by Pacific Arts Movement's 2021 San Diego Asian Film Festival, October 28th through November 6th, showcasing over 130 films and honoring Asian and Asian-American filmmakers. For tickets and information, go to sdaff.org.
0: Welcome back to Incoming and our guest today, Army veteran and author, Matt Gallagher. I'm very excited to read your next book. I often feel one of the greatest war novels ever written was Slaughterhouse-Five, which, of course, is at least 50% pure science fiction. And for Vonnegut, it's like he's the spoonful of sugar. People don't even know they're reading Vetlet, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. I mean, some of the best war books, I think, aren't generally considered that way. Maybe, you know, that's something else to add to the conversation, is breaking free of of the constraints of what is and what is not a a war story. You know, in, in many ways, I think the best novel about World War One isn't Hemingway or Dos Passos, it's the great Gatsby. Mm. And that's all set back here in home front America, in a country that has decidedly moved on. And parts of Jay Gatsby and parts of Nick Carraway are still there, right? And and that's initially what what draws them to each other, which I think is fascinating, is a shared experience over there. And uh, Gatsby believing that his war experience can transform him into a new person back here. I've been back from Iraq 10 years now. And that resonates a lot of bringing combat experience back home and believing it can help shape you into something new. And then finding, no, you're still the same person that went over there in the first place. Even though you may not feel that way, society still treats you that way. So, uh, you know, that's w- one example of many of a quote unquote American classic that's secretly a war story. Right. Hi, my name is Matt Gallagher. This is the prologue from my novel Young Blood, published in 2016. It's strange trying to remember now. Not the war, though that's all tangled up too. I mean the other parts. The way sand pebbles nipped at our faces in the wind. How the mothers glared when we raided houses looking for their sons. The smell of farm animal waste and car exhaust blending together during patrols through town. Rambling, aimless hours lost to the desert, how falafel bits got stuck between my teeth so much, I started bringing floss on missions, along with extra ammo and water, the sun, the goddamn heat, the days I couldn't sleep and the nights I wouldn't, how the power of being in charge got to me, how it got to all the officers and sergeants, giant armed soldiers at our backs, ready to carry out foreign policy through sheer fucking force. Now sometimes, many times, we were gentle. The feeling of something, relief, gratitude, exhaustion, when a patrol returned to the outpost and for another day, we'd be able to ask ourselves, just what the hell were we doing? So little of Iraq had anything to do with guns or bombs or jihads, that's what people never understand. There was the desert and the locals. In their lives. The way time could be vague and hazy one moment, yet hard as bone the next. A lot of people ask, what was it like? And once, I even tried to answer. I was home with old friends. They meant well, and while they didn't want a perfect story, they wanted a clean one. It's what everyone wants, and I knew that. But it came out wrong. I started off about imperial grunts walking over past we didn't know anything about, but I could see their eyes glazing over, so I switched to the Iraqi kids playing in mud under bent utility poles, but that didn't work either. An anecdote about finding out the Sheik's porn collection earned some laughs, but by then I'd lost them, so I stopped. What's an imperial grunt? One asked later. Did they help the SEALs get bin Laden? Kind of, I said, even though we hadn't. miss it, which is a funny thing to think, until I remember otherwise. Like the daily purpose, I miss that, as messy as it could be. I miss the clarity of trying to survive, miss the soldiers, even miss the Mukhtar, who was honest enough to hate us, but still made us chai because we were guests. And her, of course. She comes in fragments, slivers of jagged memory they'd cut and condemn. How she'd sigh before we talked about the past. How my mind ached after we considered the future. I failed, Rana. Failed her utterly. All because I tried to help. What was it like? Hell if I know. But next time someone asks, I won't answer straight and clean. I'll answer crooked. And I'll answer long. And when they get confused or angry, I'll smile. Finally. I'll think, someone who understands.
0: Well, rolling into our last question off that note, being back into the civilian shoes for 10 years now, if you were to meet a service member uh, who's about to rotate out in a couple of weeks or a couple of months and you could give him one piece of advice, what would it be?
1: Uh, that's a good question. And we're thinking about, I think, for any any veteran listening or you know, any active duty service member listening— I think number my number one advice is meet people halfway. Whether that's a spouse, whether it's a a partner, whether it's your parents, whether it's old friends, they are trying to connect with you. They want desperately to connect with you. And it is vital that you remember that them coming to you the way they have is a courageous act. And you have to meet them in kind. They're not looking for answers. They're just looking for human com- communication, because human beings communicate that way, right? You know, we're animals like that in that way. They don't need an explanation, but you know, if they're if they're reaching out that way, the way friends and family will do when you come back from come back from deployment, meet them there and try to view the interaction from their perspective, uh, and also try to remember it's it's all been done before. Right. You're not alone. Not not only have thousands of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans experienced the same. Same feelings and sensations of dislocation that you're, that you're now experiencing. Thousands of veterans going all the way back to, to Greece, through Rome, the same thing. And, and I, I remember how freeing that was, that you're part of an ancient tradition and taking pride in that and then simultaneously remembering that you're not special because mm-hmm. of that, right? Do you want to be one of the ones who doesn't figure out or do you want to be the ones that do? Of course you want to be the ones that, that figures it out. And for my money, that all, that all goes back to, to meeting ha- people halfway. You don't need to provide more than that, but you can't just rant at them and ask them to come, come get you. you got to bring yourself back halfway yourself.
0: Right. Well, Matt Gallagher, thank you so much. Congratulations on The Kid, The Anniversary, and your upcoming third book. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. And that's our show. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell. Our editor is Jennifer Pepperpot Corley. At KPBS, Kirk Conan is radio production manager, Emily Jankowski is technical director, Kinsey Morlin is podcast coordinator, Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is director of programming. Music in this episode was provided by the artists James Boudreau, Philip Weigel, Nocturne, and Lee Rosevere. Incoming is made possible by the KPBS Explore Fund the California Arts Council's Veterans Initiative in the Arts, the City of San Diego's Commission for Arts and Culture, and the supporting members of So Say We All. You can find us on the web and learn more at sosayweallonline.com. Please do subscribe to the incoming podcast through wherever else you do your podcasting. Drop us a review and a rating. It helps so much. Tell your friends. Share about it on Facebook, if that's a thing. Facebook, I don't know. And if you'd like to get in touch with us directly, we would like to hear from you by email at info at Thanks so much for listening. Let's talk again soon.
2: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Institute of Contemporary Art San Diego with Gabriel Rico's Unity and Variety. Neon, taxidermy, and augmented reality sculptures from locally sourced objects transform the galleries. Open September 24th in Balboa Park, icasandiego.org.